So you wanna watch a movie, but you don't know which. Choosing the one can be a bitch. But Jared and Drew have perfected the art. So sit back, relax, and trust the dark. It's dark. What's going on, everyone? I'm Drew. And I'm Jared. And welcome to Dartboard Movie Night, the podcast where we put 20 movies on a board, throw a dart at it, and let the fates decide. This week, after a long hiatus, we return to the board to cover another hidden gem from the 1970s. We're talking 1978's Straight Time, directed by Ulu Grossbard and starring Dustin Hoffman, along with a murderer's row of character actors. Roger Ebert once said, quote, no movie featuring either Harry Dean Stanton or M. Emmett Walsh in a supporting role can be altogether bad. And that absolutely <laughs> holds up here. How about it, Jared? Dude, holds up so true. I mean, maybe maybe it's obvious, but Harry Dean is a big dog contender. I, I'll say contender. certainly for He's me. He's already a big dog. Was he? I mean, I mean, I mean, for the year, he's a he's a contender for Big Dog of the Year. Okay, um, was he? He must have been a nominee last go around for, oh, the, yeah, for the yeah, previous he came batch up in the 50. conversation. He is just the best, dude. And one of those movies I really didn't know much about. I don't know how you feel about it outside of that little intro you just mentioned. But I'm looking forward to getting into this movie, man, and excited to be back. Like you said, it's been a while. We're back, baby. Also, M. Emmett Walsh, is that the hardest name to rip, like just rattle Terrible. off on the fly like Terrible. that? <laughs> so it's so gummy, man. It's such a it's such a stumbling block of a name. M. Emmett. But yeah, no, I think that quote from Ebert is is uh I, I had heard that before because like just in relation to Harry Dean Stanton, I had heard the, you know, if he's in it, it can't be totally bad kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I forgot that M. Emmett Walsh was also part of that quote. And we get both of them. And, uh, man, they're both fucking just crushing it. They are just, yeah. like, just laying down, like, <laughs> 21 after 21 on the blackjack table, just fucking crushing it. <laughs> Unbelievable. And like you said, the cast overall, which we'll certainly get to, is unreal. This is a great great cast well yeah i mean i i called it a murderer's row i'll rattle off the other ones i mean you know you've obviously got uh teresa russell who's who's you know i'm not as familiar with but she's killing it in this movie uh you got a young kathy bates you got uh, uh who else young gary Busey. young gary Busey, man it's, it's yeah it's 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 stacked it's a great great yeah. great cast and of course, Dustin Hoffman himself, which is just a huge, Hoffman huge himself. star at the time and, and a huge kind of iconic actor from the 60s, 70s and straight through to the last, you know, eh, last 10 years, not so much. But he was on a hot <laughs> streak for like 40, 50 years. It's uh, I, I'll just lay this out up front. This might be my new favorite Dustin Hoffman performance. Mm, excited to. To dive in, dude. We'll let's see. Let's get into it. But first, let's do a quick board review. It's been a while since I've done this. Let's see how I get through it. <laughs> At number one, The Brothers Bloom. Number two, Don't Look Now. Number three, The Last of the Mohicans. Number four, Rio Bravo. Number five, Capote. Number six, Anomalisa. Number seven, Alligator. Number eight, Election. Number nine, Get Carter. Number 10, Limey. Number 11, Coraline. Number 12, Big Night. Number 13, Dirty Dancing. Number 14, Today's Episode, Straight Time. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Secrets and Lies. Number 17, Seven Days in May. Number 18, Snatch. Number 19, Strange Days. And number 20, Altered States. Oh, it's just good to hear the list again, man. It's been too long. Well, this is a Jared Given selection. 
And it's one that I remember you kind of having a dalliance with a while ago and not mm-hmm. putting it on. We, I remember you put on Night Moves instead. Mm-hmm. What compelled you to come back and, and get this one on? Well, it is interesting how it's like connected to Night Moves, but but not. So here's the way it all shook out. Walked into Videodrome, gets mentioned at least every episode, every other episode, if not every episode. Um, but walked into Videodrome to rent a movie. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to let the cover speak to me of a potential movie. And I'm going to ask the employee if they have any recommendations. So I'm going to do a two for thing. So I walked through and the, the case for Night Moves, which we've covered on this show since, stuck to me. It's just, just, it popped out to me. It's like, this looks interesting. It had a sticker on it that said recommended with an exclamation point that the store had like added to it. I was like, okay, so so someone here loves this movie. It looks like an interesting, boom, that's going to be the one I just choose from for gut reaction. And then I went up and I spoke to the guy who was working at Videodrome that day. And I asked him, oh, what, what have you been, what have you seen? Like 70s kind of crime-ish or what's something that's good that, that is, you think is kind of underseen? And he walked me over to Straight Time and said, this movie's great. I think it's really kind of underseen, really great Hoffman performance. And I had never just heard of this movie. Like, it me just, either. Yeah. It was like, which is surprising considering what I view as the quality of it. But it was, um, we, we ended up, I, I, I brought these two choices to you and we flipped a coin and we ended up going with night moves based on the coin flip. And I really wanted to get this one on the board too. Night Moves, I think it's fair to say we both really love that movie or really, really dug it. Um, This one I was when, like you said, I was kind of holding off from 70s movies because I had put so many on. I had to take a little break. But finally the walls came down and I was like, no, I've got to get straight time up there. I've been wanting to see this movie for over a year now. Let's get it on the board. And I think we hit it pretty quick after it was added. I don't think it's it, it sat on the board for very long. You put this on during the Karate Kid episode. So that was okay. about six or seven episodes ago. Right, right. So yeah, it's been a, it didn't live on the board for that long. And I'm just really glad we hit it. And um, yeah, looking forward to chatting about it, dude. Absolutely. Jared, why don't you give us a quick streaming check before we dive into our overall thoughts? As mentioned, this is not a very well-known movie as far as we're aware. And a lot of times when you get these movies that are like kind of deep cut sort of sleepers, they're just pay to rent and they're not really available to stream anywhere. And as of the recording today, that is the case. This is 1978 straight time, pay to rent, you know, your Apple, your Amazons, your wherever's kick in three, four bucks. Check this movie out if you feel so inclined. Yeah, I rented it on iTunes. It was only $3. It's not, you know, a 4 or $5 rental like some other movies. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, well worth your time and money, I would say. There's also a Blu-ray out there with a commentary track if you really want to kind of get in deep with it. Who's on the commentary? Uh, the director whose name I can't... Lou Grossbard. Yeah, he, 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 he and Hoffman are on it. But it oh, was one Hoffman, of those, are they on it together? They're not. It was one of those things recorded separately. But they're, gotcha. both, they're both contributing to it actively. Yeah. Um, well, we'll get into kind of the gestation of this movie and, and how uh, it got or I guess, you know, the production issues on this movie, because there were some of those. But uh, but Grossbard was uh, kind of a late addition to this uh, that that we'll we'll kind of we'll touch on that in here in a little mm-hmm. bit. But I think let's uh, let's start with our overall thoughts. What did you think of Straight Time for your first viewing? First viewing. 
I thought it was really solid. And I was like, I like this movie a lot. Not not blown away, but I, I really dug it. I'm really glad we saw it. Approaching the second viewing, because I watched it a few weeks ago, and kind of a little inside baseball, as we like to say. Drew and I have just been so busy, we haven't been able to record in a while. So it had been like two weeks since I had seen it. And we were getting ready to record, and I was like, well, I have to see it again. I'd like to see it twice anyway, let alone when there's like two weeks of time in between. And as I was approaching the rewatch, it was starting to feel a little homeworky. I was like, oh, I don't know, I'm just not really in the mood to fire it up again, blah, blah, blah. So I watched it a second time, and something about it just hit me on a deeper level. And I was like, no, no, I like this more than just a little bit. This is more than just solid. I'm really into this movie. And then I watched it this morning a third time with the commentary on. And it's just getting better and better. I really, really responded to this movie, particularly on second and third watch. Mm -hmm. And it's so, it's got such a good flow and rhythm to it and the way it takes its twists and turns and doles out information and the characters are all great. The performances are all spectacular. It's such a kind of patient, slow burny sort of movie in a way. And I just, I'm loving it. I, I think it's one of my favorites that we've covered in this batch. And it, it's, um, it's damn near swept me off my feet, dude. I like this movie a lot. I think it's excellent. And I'm, it's criminally, no pun intended, underseen. I've never heard by our anybody generation, for sure. by our generation. Like I've never heard anybody mention this movie. It's never been been brought to my attention, uh, and it's great. I think it's really, really solid. Another great notch in the belt from the seventies, and I really, really dug it. What did you think, Drew? What were your overall first impressions of Straight Time? Well, I watched this for the first time last night, and I was immediately hooked. Um, I think I have a natural gravitational pull towards thief movies and kind of uh, just movies about people people on kind of the the fringes of society um, that you know are in some way or another trying to find some normalcy in their lives, but can't help themselves, but be kind of like sucked back into their, their habits and, and, you know, what they, what they do. Um, and, and also just, you know, kind of like people who are, are, well, this, I, this is not as much relevant to this one, but just, you know, generally like competent thieves, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, you know, this movie is you know debatable on that front, but yeah. <laughs> um, well, whereas something like heat is like elite thieves, next level detail oriented or whatever. like oceans 11, another movie yeah, that's just yeah, yeah, an all time yeah. grade of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Movies like that where it's like you're, it's competency porn. Uh, yeah. you know, I love that shit, but, but you know, just the, the thief aspect, just the aspect of like. Um, like, yeah, I, I don't know. Just, just outcasts trying to fit into normal society and not totally being able to, I think is, is always a really compelling central like story thrust. And this movie is, is one of the best that I've seen in that kind of realm. Um, I, I just, I, I love that this movie 
you know, I, I saw, so there was a, um, there was a review I was reading on Letterboxd last night and I, I don't remember exactly who wrote it. It was some critic and they were kind of critiquing the movie as like, well, this movie would be better if you started with, you know, him as the thief and then trying to like get back into society and then falling back in kind of like the, the, you know, here, there, back kind of thing. And and I was just like, no, like that's yeah. that's the opposite of what I want from this. I love that this movie spends the first half an hour, 45 minutes of it with him legitimately like seeming like this guy who's like, I really am trying to break this cycle. Mm-hmm. And and I, I there, you know, yes, I am kind of skirting, you know, some of the rules like I, you know, I want to kind of just spend the night, you know, walking around and feeling like a part of society. I'm not going to go to the halfway house like I, I agreed to, you know, he's he's not doing it quite right, but it's it's coming from a place of like trying to feel normal again and trying to feel yeah. like a human being that that's a part of society again. And I love that the movie doesn't bother with showing you who he was before then. It, it really is is mostly concerned with who he is after getting out of prison. And then the tragedy of, of like the system just refusing to allow him that, 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 you know, the, 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 the it way. It does not allow him any dignity. At no. All. And, yeah. and, and that's really all he's looking for is just, just some semblance of dignity Mm-hmm. And yeah, he probably like like would fuck up again in some way. Like like there, I I don't I didn't get the sense in the early part of the movie that he was like this fully reformed, you know, person who who was going to go on the straight and narrow. But certainly he wanted like like there was a part of him that craved that. And when the system denies him that, and he gets paired with this fucking parole officer who just terrorizes him, like he breaks again and and like gets and it falls back into the same patterns. And I think like the tragedy of that arc is so much more compelling to me than, you know, establishing him as this, you know, this criminal who then tries to reform. Like, like I like that it starts from a place of compassion for this guy, as opposed to like making you say like, like starting from the place of he was properly prisoned. You know what I mean? Like you, you, you lead into this movie uh, with the potential of, well, maybe this guy shouldn't have been in prison. Maybe he was, mm. you know, maybe he made a couple of mistakes, but he like didn't deserve the rap he's getting. And he's, you know, he's uh, getting thrown back in prison unjustly. And like, I, I don't know. I just like, I love that. And then, and then you get this turn and you're like, oh no, this guy, like, I, I don't know. I, I, yeah. I, I think the arc of how this movie goes is, is very different than most movies. And that's what mm-hmm. I like about it. Totally, totally agree. And and that's, I think, how it really changes for me on second viewing. It's, it's one of the elements that changes. Where the first time I watched the movie, and, you know, he mentioned, like you discussed, he mentions how he didn't go to the halfway house. He just wanted to walk around and just feel free. And, like, first time watching it, I'm immediately on Dustin Hoffman's side in this situation where i'm like fuck this p this parole officer this po and he, guy and he did just call kinda, he left a message he wanted to yeah, like, he he, he, he tried part. to do it somewhat by the book yeah and and it just seems like he's trying so hard and he is and that still exists on on the second viewing but when we know the trajectory of his character and how he is incapable of conforming to a lot of the norms of society 
and has just sort of this kind of criminal streak through him, those scenes with the PO kind of change. And yes, that guy is still being a dick and he's kind of like a racist asshole who just enjoys having people under his boot. So I'm not like pro the PO guy, but we know how unpredictable Dustin Hoffman is in this role. Well, yeah, he's and how been in he's, and out for, for decades at this point. And the PO's like inability to fully trust this person and cut him any slack is more justifiable on second viewing. Cause I'm like, I know what Dustin Hoffman is capable of and what he goes on to do in this movie. Well, but it of isn't, course it isn't, the PO has yeah. a role in that coming back too, right. by being a dick and getting him locked up. When it's like, no it's a chicken or the and, egg kind of situation. Where yeah. It's like, like, well, like is, is the justice system just so fucked that like this guy has never been given the proper opportunity to be reformed or is mm-hmm. he just incapable of reforming? Yeah, it's and, a great question. And I and I think like the ending of the movie is really what just like brought this thing home for me where it's like I I I just I love that this character is simultaneously maybe somewhat unself-aware but also is aware enough to know like he is who he is, you know? Like the line of like why can't I come with you and his response is I want to get caught. Like he's like, I, I, this is who I am. I like, and it, and it's, it's also part of a larger genre that I also really respond to, which is just like people who can't shake their demons, you know? And like, for some reason that line just brought me to, uh, uh, Manchester by the sea, which is a weird connection to make, but Casey Affleck's character, <laughs> Casey Affleck's character. Yeah, seriously. Um, uh, but his character in that movie you know, has this horrifically tragic event in his past. And, you know, the whole scene with him and Michelle Monaghan, or or, excuse me, the whole scene with him and Michelle Williams, where, you know, she's like pleading with him to like, like, come on, like you can, you can get help. Like there's a way out of this. And he's like, I can't shake it. Like, I, like, it's just, it is like, there it's the most heartbreaking moment in the movie because it's just it's this guy you know it you know admitting to the person who was ostensibly the love of his life that like he's irre- he is irrevocably broken like like mm-hmm. not like he, there's no part of him that can change anymore it, this is just who he is he's like mac jones <laughs> Don't, I don't get that reference no, at all. He's he's playing terribly. Sorry to derail. <laughs> okay, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know that scene you're talking about where he's like, uh, if I'm thinking of the same one, because I've only seen that movie once, and it was like around the time it came out, where they're like on the sidewalk outside, and it's like a medium to long shot, and he's got his like kind of head well, down, and she's trying yeah. to be apologetic to him and uh, absolve him to some degree, and he just can't accept it, and he walks away in like in mid tearful breakdown because mm-hmm. you can't, is that the scene? Am I thinking of it? Yeah. Correctly? Yeah. No, yes, it's, yeah. it's, it's devastating. It's uh, burned. That, that movie is, Oh my God. I, I, I am like getting emotional just thinking about it because that, that movie just affects me on such a deep level. But, but yeah, it's a guy that just like he, you know, there, there are certain things in our life um, that change us in ways that like become in, you know, just, just ingrained in our, in our, and just who we are. Um, and like, 
you you can make the best of that. You can like try to put a positive spin on things. You can try to uh, you know um, cope with it. But there there are certain things that just stick with you, and you can't. You, you there, there's just no there's no breaking that cycle for you. And I mean, I have those in my life and like, you know, I think everyone like as they get older, you start to, to realize these things that, that, that make you who you are. And I think that is, that's really a fascinating things, thing to kind of uh, tie into this like thief story where like this guy is like, he, he's like simultaneously self-aware and unself-aware at the same time. And I don't know. I just, I just find it like, this is like one of the most compelling thief characters I've ever seen put to film because he like, he knows that he is a bad person in a lot of ways Mm. and he's able to admit that to himself. And he also can try to break that cycle, but he also knows that he can't, you know, it's like, it's like all of those things at once. And I, I just think it's, it's, it's such a fascinating character and Dustin Hoffman just unbelievable unbelievable yeah. in this he is so great in especially this those first Holy like 30 shit. to 40 minutes yes and he and you know the first time we hear him speak i have this reaction of oh that's an interesting choice with that accent and that thought i had just melts away so quick i think he's doing so much yeah, with his voice the accent kind of really dips works. in and out but yeah I, I i liked it and i've never really seen a character quite like this you kind of mentioned I'm kind of just echoing what you said, but you know, we see movies about like master thieves and stuff like that. Like we were talking earlier about heat oceans, 11, things like that. And then we also, there's movies about kind of hard luck, uh, kind of slightly bumbling thieves that are just not that intelligent, but their point they're they're painted into a corner and they have no option in life, but to resort to crime. This guy is like right in the middle. I guess the character's name is Max Dembo, I feel, believe. Mm-hmm. And he's like, he's not a master, super smart thief. He's no, impulsive. He's, a he's reckless. He's a career, but he's also not a bumbling idiot either. Like he's like right down the middle of being like a pretty accomplished and competent thief, but he does have these greedy tendencies, whether he is subconsciously well, trying to get caught or, but, or he's just greedily trying to stay longer than they should be at the bank heist, which they pull off. But it's the first time we're introduced to this idea of him ignoring the clock and, and like not escaping according to the plan. And then of course, when it gets catastrophic, when that issue brings itself back around in the jewelry heist, but I just I don't know. I, this guy well, is so interesting. He's an addict. Where he's like, it's a yeah. movie about an addict as well. Like it's it's a guy who is addicted to um, uh, the the thrill of of the heist, and it causes him to be reckless. Like he makes choices that are driven by greed and by the the uh, uh, just the desire to do the thing that he set out to do, um, regardless of of what might go wrong. Like, like, like every, every single scene in this movie of them setting up a crime or, or, you know, uh, completing a crime. He's, he's always trying to push it one step too far. He's always trying to just like, like take that extra inch. And, and, you know, it's, it's really that addict mentality of like, no, I can do one more. 
no, 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 I can do one more. It's 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 gonna be okay. Like I've I've got this under control. Like this this like false sense of of control that these these addicts have. Um, and I, you know, again, that's that's another reason this movie really resonates with me. Like I think like stories like that are really fascinating as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just it's just great, and it's really cool to see this side of Hoffman. You know, I in my mind, the performances from his sort of kind of legacy so far that stand out are The Graduate and All the President's Men, maybe. Those are two that just come to mind right now. And in The Graduate, you know, he's playing certainly initially this very kind of nervous character who's at ease with his their own future and, and their point, their their position in the world and stuff. And, and, you know, it's that awkwardness that he really displays so well in the first half of that movie. And then you have something like All the President's Men where he's playing this reporter who's like a pit bull, like doesn't let go of leads and ideas and he's thorough, but he still is kind of on the nerdyish side of the spectrum a little bit. He's socially awkward and all these well, things. I think there's also like a little bit of a performative aspect to those characters as well, where it's like they are trying to be cooler or more badass than they are. Yeah. And then this guy is a shade of Hoffman I've never seen, who is just this like this criminal. I just totally buy him in this role. He's not um, lacking in confidence. And he's, I don't know, he's just a really fascinating character. And I had never seen Hoffman playing in this arena where he's like a bit of a shit heel, but we like him, but we don't. And he does some things in this movie that are unjust, that are yeah. justifiable, some things that are not. And it's just, it's really, it's really a fascinating character that I felt like I was wrestling with. And I could not help but bite my fist at some of the decisions he makes. You know, it's just like you feel this thing slipping away from him. And it's like the dramatic version of the British office where, you know, the British office and and the American to some extent, too, is just so awkward and it's that sort of awkward humor where you just want to bite your fist. You can't believe what you're seeing. This is like the dramatic version of that, where like whenever he's just continuing down, he, he's getting off the straight and narrow path and he's making reckless decision after reckless decision. I'm just thinking like, don't do that. No, no. And, and it's just, you just feel it just slipping through his fingers as he's losing control and continuing to get more and more reckless. And I love that the movie made me feel that way as mm-hmm. it, as it was kind of going off the rails. I felt for him and I, I felt for the fact that it was getting away from him. It's just really cool. I think it's the first performance um, from this era of Hoffman, like pre 1980, where I really feel like, like early Hoffman, like postgraduate, like between the graduate and here, it really feels like there's there's constantly a chip on his shoulder. Like he needs he needs to prove to Hollywood that he is this, you know, generational actor who is, you know, um, I, I mean, like you read like stories about Hoffman in his personal life and and just what a fucking jackass he was to everybody. And like, there's a story of him being on his, like, like next to his dad on when his dad's on his deathbed and the whole family's in the room and everyone's, you know, crying and weeping and Hoffman isn't. And Hoffman's just kind of like looking around the room, kind of absorbing everything. 
And apparently like he was just kind of like trying to take in that, that moment and try and like internalize it so he could then, you know, externalize it within like performances. And it's like the sociopathy there of like, dude, your dad's fucking dying. And you're like, you're, you're, you're trying to like turn this into, you know, a, material. A, a, yeah, exactly. And yeah. it's like, you know, like that Hoffman where it's like he has so much to prove and he's like this, you know, this little, you know, you know, short kind of like Jewish kid who like, uh, you know, is, is not like the best looking guy. Like he, he's not a traditional like Hollywood movie star look by any means. And like, yeah, just like there, there's a chip on his shoulder and, and that like you definitely get the sense of in like all the president's men, especially where it's there's, there's the performative aspect, which translates to the character really, really well most of the time. But like this is the first time I've seen him in a role from this era where I feel like he just becomes this character. It's not like there's no like he, he doesn't go showy almost ever. Like he he doesn't explode. It's all very controlled, very precise. Um, like and when he does like unleash, when he does have these big emotional bursts, it 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 lands because it's it's that's not the like the the main thing he's doing with the performance. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just like especially within that first thirty to forty minutes, like I said, where you're just like watching this character kind of like the the bubbling rage underneath the surface, where he's like the the injustices are are stacking up and the you know the the fact that he has to keep groveling to people and just keep like being lesser than all these other people like it is you know i i don't know like like it's it's just of it's of a shade of of hoffman that i haven't seen because you know like after this you've got like 80s hoffman where he kind of like becomes that more middle-aged actor where he's you know doing stuff like kramer versus kramer and uh, you know, wag the dog in the nineties. And like, like he, he starts to, to be more of like a, he, he just seems more in control of himself and like, like what he's doing as an actor. Whereas like the seventies, it's just like, like I, I am fucking proving myself like this. I am an actor. I am a capital a actor. And like, you know, I, I don't know. This is the first time I I've seen him from that era where it's just like, like it feels like he went to prison and just immersed yeah. himself in this character, you know? <laughs> yeah, which I guess he spent like two years researching the character. I believe including it. Including spending a day in San Quentin and he was like kind of disguised so people like couldn't recognize him. And he really got invested in the character. And a lot of times I feel like these actors can just go a little bit far with it, whether it's Daniel Day-Lewis or whatever. It's like, really? Did you need to go live in the woods for months and build a canoe or whatever the fuck? Um, But then it can be hard to argue with the results. And this can kind of fit in that category of like, um, I can't argue with it. Maybe maybe he needed the two years because I like the end result so much. Like, it's just like, it's a great great performance and i think it's my official favorite hoffman that i've seen a lot of these movies you mentioned like in his 80s run like wag the dog which i guess is early 90s but kramer versus kramer i haven't seen those and i I plan on getting to them on my own time but for the hoffmans i've seen it's it's something else man it's it's really special yeah no it really is um 
We should also mention here that Hoffman was originally going to direct this movie. And, you know, he shepherded it through pre-production. Like the, the plan was always for him to direct it. It sounds like he directed for like one day. It was mostly just, you know, wide establishing shots. And he just kept doing new setups and then like achieved like nothing in the course of the day. And the studio just immediately replaced him with Ulu Grosbart. <laughs> well, I heard I had heard he he was very nervous about it. And at the time they didn't have playback. So whenever a scene was done, he would just apparently lean over to the DP and maybe Sam Osteen, the editor who was on set, and just be like, Was that all right? Because he didn't he he's never done it before and they don't have playback. You can't just run it back and see you're depending on these people around you. And he was like, I literally can't, after every take, be leaning over and checking in with the DP if we should do another one or not. Like, and so he just didn't have the confidence for it and they didn't have the technology to put him at ease. Mm. So he, I guess, after the first day he saw rushes or dailies or whatever they were called then. And he was dismayed and he was like, I don't have the confidence for this. I can't do it. And I guess he was. He, Interesting. This, uh, I didn't realize the, it was his partially his decision. It felt yeah, like I it think was more was, of a studio choice. Based on the commentary, that's what it sounded like. Where he well, was, was this from his mouth or was this from somebody else's mouth? It was from his. He so so you see, you're saying grain. You're saying salt take grain. it with a big old grain of salt because there's there are multiple stories out there of Hoffman kind of glossing over the truth to make himself look better. <laughs> so he didn't get fired. He chose to step down from directing. Correct. That's um, that, it. Sounds like a little bit of uh, him playing with the fast and loose with the facts. Could be. Could he? It's kind of like a Max move. He's still in character. He's, he's not telling the whole truth there. Um, but I don't know how, how whatever however that shook out. Has this director done anything else, by the way? I will never remember his name. <laughs> Ulu Grosbard. Um, Ulu Grosbard. Yeah, he has. So, okay. So, yeah, he, I mean, he wasn't, uh, I, I wouldn't call him a major filmmaker by any means. Uh, before this movie, he did two films, one in 68 called The Subject Was Roses and one in 71 called Who Is Harry Kellerman and Why Is He Saying Those Terrible Things? Um, after this movie... He directed some movies with, with big actors. True Confessions uh, was made in 1981 uh, with De Niro, Robert Duvall, um, hmm. Charles Durning. And then uh, you've got Falling in Love with Meryl Streep and uh, Robert De Niro. So him and De Niro did back-to-back -back movies uh, in 81 wow. and 84. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah. So, I mean, he's he's made some some movies with big stars and, you know, some, some big names. But uh, nothing that really achieved you know yeah that kind of level i i would say this is absolutely his his most famous work mm -hmm. yeah it, and if it's indicative of his style i might see if i can see some of something else that he's done just for shits but i love this style it's it's so um simple and and clean and direct and i feel like they don't overdo wide shots but they do let the actors play and they'll they'll just have a nice wide establishing shot, whether it's with when he's with Gary Busey and Kathy Bates at the dinner, the dinner table. That's a nice kind of just wide that's just hanging out. And then uh, there's there's just a bunch of situations like that or like when we get introduced to Harry Dean Stanton and he's at the picnic, t uh, the poolside table with his wife. And that's another wide that's just chilling there. 
But it's not like to go way back a movie like which I know you haven't seen, but Sling Blade, which it just lives in wides. It's like so many wides is too much. This movie is, for my taste, perfectly selective where it's like, Mm. no, let's let the actors breathe. Let's let the scene play out. But then they're not married to that idea. There's other sequences that are have a little bit more cuts to them and the camera's doing some interesting things. It's just very simple. And in terms of, again, more to his style, I had a moment today where it's when they're leaving the bank heist hmm. and it's all so simple. They're, they're, they get out of there, they drive around the block or some distance away, they change vehicles, they get in the truck, and they head down and they start counting the money. And it's, there's nothing fancy about it at all. And I'm just like, I'm just loving this. I'm loving the way it is just shot. They're just showing you what's happening. Well, I love like, this shot specifically of when they're in the one car. It pulls up. And it, and it basically, he's got like a camera kind of positioned right in the middle of an intersection. Mm-hmm. And you see the car, like the camera just kind of pans with the car as it goes to park. They get out of the car. The camera then follows them to the other car, and they drive away the other way. It's exactly the all moment within I was one of. one camera move. The, the the you know it's stationary. Uh, it's just a panning you know move that the camera is doing, mm-hmm. and it's just it's simple, but it communicates everything you know that yeah. you need to know about like what they're doing in that scene. And it's like it's not showy, but no. it, it gets all the the information across. It's really it's really well done. And, and, and I mean I think feels it, right. What's that? Oh, sorry, I just said, and it just feels right. Like everything's making sense. It's kind of invisible, these camera moves to mm-hmm. me. Um, and it's just, again, that's just when it comes to the way this director in this movie shows you what's happening and the way visually it, it, it explains what's going on, it all makes so much sense. And I just love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this would be a good time to kind of mention just the, the writing of this movie. Um, so this movie is based on a book by Edward Bunker, who was an ex-convict himself and was the technical consultant on the movie, as well as a co-screenwriter. Um, he actually has a small cameo in the movie. Uh, he, he's a guy that, uh, you know, he, he lived in this world and, and he knows how to kind of coach these people to, to make it feel natural and, and, and feel like, like, you know, how, how maybe a thief would have acted back then. And, um, it just, it feels like it's coming from a place of personal experience, which I think is, is really cool to see. Um, it's also co-written by Alvin Sargent, who is a legend of screenwriting in Hollywood. He also had a big hand, I believe in the taking of Pelham one, two, three as well. Um, do I have that right? Let me, let me just double check that. Make sure I get that right. No, I take that back. I, I take that back. No, he was he was not involved in that. But he, you know, wrote Ordinary People. Um, he wrote uh, the the one of the the screenplays for Spider Man Two. Actually, uh, he's just kind of this like legend of like Hollywood script doctoring and and just kind of make. I don't know. He's he's just one of those guys. You know what I mean? This movie also has an uncredited co screenwriter, Michael Mann. Oh, really? Yes. And and okay. this kind of all ties together because Michael Mann is also famous for embedding himself in the criminal underworld to get his movies precise and correct as far as like what they're depicting. Another amazing movie uh, about a thief called Thief 
uh, was, you know, a Michael Mann, one of, I, I believe that's Michael Mann's directorial debut. And it's on my list. Uh, yeah, that's another movie that I believe Eddie Bunker served as a technical consultant on. Um, and, and I know that the book that this movie straight time is based on, uh, was a huge inspiration for Michael Mann when he was putting heat together. Mm. Did you, um, did you recognize Bunker by the way? I, I, something connected when I saw his face and then I, I put it all together later. Okay. But so keep you going. Know, I know where you're going. Yes. Yeah. So people from our generation might recognize him. He plays a pretty small role in Reservoir Dogs. Mr. Blue. Mr. Blue. So in Straight Time, he is the person who Dustin Hoffman chats with at the bar about finding a driver. And this is this guy's kid brother and stuff like that. And it's a very red scene. And he's in a suit and he's talking about like, yeah, he's good. He's as good as his brother was at that age. So that's Bunker. And yeah, he is the person in Reservoir Dogs who's like, what's special? Take you out back and suck your dick or whatever. So he, yeah, he's just this kind of guy who I guess was like, like you said, consultant and things like that, but also was a little bit of a Hollywood legend on his own. To continue that line of thought, this movie was a huge inspiration for Quentin Tarantino, specifically on Reservoir Dogs. But also mm. he had Robert De Niro watch this movie leading up to production on Jackie Brown because he wanted he wanted De Niro to kind of channel some of the energy of, of Hoffman in this movie being, you know, a, a, a you know, a criminal who just uh, just got out of the prison. So um, all of it is tied together. He, you know. Uh, uh, Ulu Grossbard, the filmmaker of the of, of Straight Time, gets a uh, special thanks credit on Reservoir Dogs, actually, because of how inspirational this movie was to Tarantino. Wow, that is so cool! And when you said De Niro and Jackie Brown, just thunderbolt. It's like, oh my god, I can see it. The mm-hmm. mustache, even just in style, he's very similar, and the character, this sort of kind of recidivist criminal type of guy who's just I, I don't know it just that makes so so much sense so we got like a Tarantino fan of this I guess He's 100% a yeah and and I mean yeah. De Niro you know his character in that movie is also very similar to Hoffman in that he's very uh, so he's soft-spoken for the most part he does you know he chooses his words very carefully and and I think like the early parts of this movie are very very much in line with with what he's doing in Jackie Brown so yeah 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 yeah, it's uh, it's interesting how all of that connects together. And, you know, it, it's it's clear that this movie, despite not being, you know, a movie that that uh, general audiences seem super aware of these days, filmmakers and like film obsessives clearly have latched onto this one. And, and it makes a lot of sense why. Totally, totally. It's like the Velvet Underground type of movie. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure, like, yeah. Very, inf- very influential, but not super well known in its time. I really do hope it gets more kind of light shed on it. Certainly beyond beyond our little show, but like I want to hear more people talking about this film because it is sick. Well, we need to we need to talk some Harry Dean Stanton. Oh, you better believe it, dude. I, believe so it. I knew he was going to be in this movie. I remember when you threw out this and Night Moves. I I was very unfamiliar with both films, and I remember looking at IMDb kind of you know while you were you know, thinking it through 
and I saw Harry Dean Stanton's name pop up. And this was, you know, right after we had done the straight story and, and, you know, not too long after we had done Repo Man and, you know, Stanton was just on both of our minds for sure. And I didn't want to spoil it for you at the time, but you already knew going in that he was going to be in it. And, uh, yeah, it, I just I, I was so stoked just to to get him, and we don't get him for like the first hour of the movie. I know. Did you get the hungry eyes? Because I got him bad on the first watch. So when I rented the movie from the guy Videodrome, when we finally hit it on the board, we're really gonna watch it. When he's handing it over, he's like, "Oh, Harry Dean Stanton, he's so good. He just comes in and like takes over the movie." And I'm just like. Like so excited, like a girl seeing the Beatles in the 60s. I'm just like, I can't wait to see Harry Dean. So I was like distracted for like the first hour of this movie because I'm just on the lookout for Harry Dean Stanton. I got this little, I know he's in it and and we've got the Videodrome guy being like, this guy is, is amazing in it. And I'm thinking, is he going to be like a rival to Dustin Hoffman? Is he a cohort? I don't know this. I don't know the relationship at all. All I know is he's coming and he's going to take it over. So I was just so on the search for him. Like, it's like he calls that person on the phone. I'm like, is that, is that Stanton? Is that Stanton? It's like, oh, I think that's Busey. Calm down. I think it's Busey. We'll get to Busey. No shade on Busey. But I was just so searching for him and so excited for Stanton to show up. Yeah. And he comes in like a fucking wrecking ball. And I, <laughs> and I love it. I love that we... <laughs> We start out with domesticated Harry Dean. <laughs> <laughs> like you, you mentioned the scene of you know them just kind of sitting around the the table by the pool and and having burgers. And first of all, I just want to mention the director gave uh, Harry Dean's wife in in the movie so much business. <laughs> like she's like sitting there, she's like putting three burgers together with like onions and tomato and lettuce, and she's like doing all this business while they're having a full conversation. Bowl of chips, like this. This is if you keep an eye on the chip bowl in that scene, it gets passed around so many times it lands in different parts of the just table. Business. Just business, like, just <laughs> they're just doing shit, and it's like yeah. But I mean, like a you know, good good on those actors for being able to pull, pull all that off because that's that's hard to do and then a guitar gets broken out and you know you get harry dean giving us a little See, the cheeseburger we're eating actors always talk about how difficult it is to eat in scenes oh yeah they're eating cheeseburgers it's just crazy it is but anyway um i love that we start with domesticated harry dean where he's you know he's Oh, I've, I've, you know, I'm on the straight and narrow. I've got this job, but you know, I'm looking yeah. all I need left is a, a new car and blah, blah, blah. And then as soon as the wife leaves the picture, he's like, get, get me, me the out fuck out of, here. Out, of here. <laughs> out of here. I'm dying here. I'm dying here. Get me out of here. So I know you good. got something. I know you got something. I love like, so he shows up. I'm so excited. I'm so happy. We're on this scene. We're talking about by the pool and just, there's a, like every time he's in a scene, there's something where I'm just staring at him like, what do I love about this guy? Why do I, why am I so interested in him? And he, almost every scene he's in, he does something where I'm like, there it is. There's the thing I love about him. And it's when, you remember his wife is like asking about, do you know this person that was at San Quentin with him? And uh, <laughs> Harry Dean's just like eating chips out of the bowl. He's just like, he doesn't know the man, honey. And then like, he goes on to like, like get his burger ready. And she keeps at it. And she's like, he had a nickname of blah, blah, blah. And he just gives this like little look back to her. That's just like, it's, it's small, but it's just like, I just love that where he's like, we've been over this. He's not going to know him. And of course he does end up knowing him by his nickname, 
But uh, it's just like the perfect, like domesticated, like slight husband wife tension of just like, are you still on about this? Like, you're going to ask, like, it's a huge prison. He's not going to know him. And I don't know. I just like that little, that little glance back he does. I'm just like, that's, that's the stuff that Harry Dean does so effortlessly and so naturally. He's just so, he strikes me so authentic on camera and just so living in it. He's the king of delivering best friend energy to me. Where like, and you get this in, in straight time too, where it's like, there's like, he is able to communicate a history between two characters in with like completely non-verbally. And I don't know how he does it, but like you just believe that these guys go way fucking back and he knows all of this guy's, you know, shortcomings. He knows the danger that this guy is going to probably present to him but he loves him and he and he he sees this guy as like a way back to his former self, you know. Um <clears throat> not not saying that that's what the energy is in straight time or, or straight story uh two straight movies that he's put in both which is so weird. confusing. So weird. <laughs> um no, in in that movie it's like a you know, it's a history of of, you know, brotherly love that's getting communicated, but in this it's like um yeah, I don't know. I just I like he he just feels so natural in every role. It doesn't matter like how close to who he is, you know, normally the character is, it just, it feels natural always. Um, and like, yeah, I don't know. I just, I just fucking love him. And, and he, you're, you know, the video drum guy is a hundred percent right. He comes in and he just <laughs> fucking lays waste to this movie. Dude, there's a point where I'm just like, he is so great, even off camera. He's so great. When they're staking out the poker mm -hmm. tape, the poker game, and they're waiting on this other guy that Hoffman bumped into at a bar who's supposed to bring him, deliver him a Believe shotgun. Him, man, it's over. Yeah, he's just so awesome in that scene. It's just like, it's unprofessional. We're not going in there without a shotgun. I told you I need a shotgun for this. And then the guy that they're waiting on finally shows up. The camera's kind of over Hoffman's shoulder, kind of following where he's looking. And it's the car pulling up. And he he mentions to Harry Dean Stanton how the guy's here. And Stanton just off camera is just like, tell him he's late. And just like the way he says it, I'm just like, I don't know why I love that so much. I don't know what is great about it. He's not even on camera. But just the delivery is so perfect. I'm just like, I just love this guy. I fucking love this guy. It's the hardest and he might thing be the to talk about because it's something completely intangible. Like I don't I don't yeah. know how to describe it. Yeah. It does it makes it it doesn't make sense. Like and it's not like he's good he doesn't say the words strangely. It's just perfect. I don't I, I don't get it. It's just natural. And he's the person I, I root for the most in the movie. Of all totally. the characters. He, I mean, he's arguably the most tragic character in the movie. In the yeah, sense I would agree that, with like, that, yeah. He, even more than Hoffman's character, he is fully aware of the mistakes he's making. And mm -hmm. he's still going along with them. Like, he also might be the best thief, too. But yeah, Oh, sorry, he, he's 100% the best thief. I mean, yeah. he knows that, like, you don't overcommit. You don't get greedy. You, you do this within the time that we allotted, and you don't go a second over. And, you know... His mistake is loyalty. His mistake is like, 
you know, he loves this guy and he wants to do the job with him. And like, he is addicted to the, the thrill of the heist. And that probably blinds him to the fact that this guy's bad news. Like he's going to get him in trouble. Um, but at the same time, he's the voice of reason. Who's, you know, constantly being like, dude, stick to the fucking plan. What are you doing? Like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a, he's, he's tragic in that he did make it out. He got out. Like he, he fully domesticated. He fully escaped the life and he still wants to go back. He can't help himself. And this movie obviously is filled with criminal characters like this. There are different shades of people either who can't escape the cycle or they're drawn back to it, or it's just in their nature to be, drawn to this well, sort of life and this yeah. sort of living, you know? Well, and going back to the scene that you mentioned, uh, with, um, with Ed, Edward Bunker, the scene where he's kind of, you know, introducing the younger kid, the younger brother of the guy who had been a, a driver for him in the past. And you see the cycle of, of crime like happening in real time. Yeah. It's, you know, that's, that's a younger version of that Hoffman character that he's meeting mm-hmm. at that point. That point, and, and a younger version of the brother who we we never get to meet, but who's doing twenty years in like Arizona or something like that. And you just see it's like it's in the family. It's in, you know, whether it's someone like Hoffman who's not related, but like you're saying, it's like an earlier version of him. Yeah. Or it's just it's just like passed down. Well, yeah. Once family. again, it's it's like an addiction cycle. It's you know the the fall into it and they can't get themselves out. They you know there's just there's no shaking it. Yeah, yeah. God, it's good. What do you think of this? Um, first and second viewing, we get um, the parole officer getting kind of chained up to the freeway with his pants pulled down. M. Emmett Walsh. M. Emmett Walsh, the terrible name. <laughs> Great performance. Terrible name. And then we have the scene that we're just talking about now of Ed's in the scene and and this is his brother and this stuff. Those are two storylines that don't really come back around. It's the fact that Gary Busey has to step in for this guy as the wheelman is the only kind of inkling. But like it seemed unnecessary to me on early viewings. And now I'm kind of loving it. I'm loving that it doesn't follow these the movie doesn't always follow these clean sort of storytelling tropes where it's like, I don't know. I was so surprised that the guy getting chained up didn't come back around. And I like that it doesn't come back around. Well, that's and, him escaping that and, and kind of going on the lamb. It doesn't, it doesn't. For sure. I, I, di- I didn't mind that it didn't come back around because, the, you know, if anything, the, the Walsh character is the character that sends him on that journey, you know? Yeah, that's true. Um. But I feel like so many types of movies would have to tie all that up. They'd be like, well, there has to be ramifications for him with this character. Or like, you know, that scene again with Bunker, like it doesn't really matter to the story. So maybe it could be cut out. But I just like that it's like, I don't know. I just like this this movie is not obsessing over making sure every story thread is brought to a resolution or tidied up or is imperative. It's just... There is a looseness here that I really am growing to admire on repeat totally. feelings. I think like a lot of 70s films, you know, get knocked with the the kind of, well, I guess less, less so 70s, more just new Hollywood movies where the looseness feels like a, a, a negative in that it's just very meandery. Like I'm thinking like, this is a movie that that a lot of people really love, and I and I do like this movie, but 
didn't respond to it the way that <clears throat> seemingly a lot of other people do. Um, five easy pieces uh, with Jack Nicholson is kind of part of the early wave of, of new Hollywood. And that movie to me just feels so loose to the point where I don't know what the point is. And this movie has that looseness, but it feels like every one of those like little tangents that it takes, they're all tying back into the central themes of the movie and, and what it wants to be about. Um, there's, it doesn't feel like any of it is superfluous. And also the movie doesn't feel bloated to me from a length perspective either. I mean, it's under two hours. Mm, yeah, no, you're right. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't have that bloat, but it does retain, retain some of the looseness, like we're saying, mm -hmm. but it's not too much. It doesn't seem aimless. And I completely agree with you. Everything is feeding the central idea. Everything's working together, whether or not these individual storylines are resolved. And it should be said, most of them are. It's not like there's loose threads all over this movie. It is It is still tidy. I just like that it has some of these dangly threads, and I agree with you. They're all working together. They're all marching in the same direction. Mm -hmm. um, well, let's go back to M.M. at Walsh, because you, yeah. uh, you brought up his character just a second ago. How familiar are you with M.M. at Walsh? Not very. I have a feeling you're going to name some of his performances. I, I did no research beyond this movie itself in isolation. And I'm going to go, oh, yes, of course, because it was a recognizable face. But I couldn't easily place where I knew him from and thought he was fantastic in this, by the way. He is absolutely fantastic. Um as I said at the opening of the show, he's uh, one of those guys that Eber, Roger Ebert cites as as just you know an all time great character actor. Um, I am super familiar with his face. I've seen him in plenty of things. I'm scrolling through his filmography, and it is fucking deep. I've been scrolling for a while, and I've only gotten <laughs> to like 1999. Um, but the ones that come up kind of on his his you know, when they do the, uh, the top four on IMDb, um, the ones that they list are Blade Runner. He has a small part in Blade Runner. Um, he's in the jerk, the, the Steve Martin movie. Um, Critters is, is a eighties, you know, kind of campy horror movie that, that I guess he must be a main character. And I haven't seen that one. Um, I know him from stuff like Romeo and Juliet, the uh, the the Baz Luhrmann, uh, Leo DiCaprio version. He plays Drew the apothecary in that. Loves the Luhrmann, loves lovely the some Luhrmann. Um, he, <laughs> I don't remember him in this, but I guess he's in My Best Friend's Wedding. That's another movie that I've I've seen. Um, he's in, <laughs> he's weirdly in the Free Willy uh, second movie. Free Willy uh, too, of course. <laughs> I, of course, yeah. Why wouldn't he be in that? <laughs> right, right, um, right. But I, I do remember his face from seeing that as a kid. Um, his biggest movie, though, is one that I'm, I'm having a little dalliance with maybe putting on the board sometime <laughs> soon, which is one of the only Coen Brother movies I've never seen. Mm. It's their film debut, Blood Simple. I've never seen it either. And he's the main character in it. Oh my God! I bet you know it's gonna be your week to nominate a replacement when we get to it. I'll just say this: I would be excited by that choice, but I'll be excited by any choice. You make. Listen, 
I, I dabbled with the idea of just not even mentioning it as part of his filmography, just because I, I'm pretty confident that's kind of where I want to go in, at the end of the show. But we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Um, he's got a little part in Reds, uh, the the uh, Warren Beatty film. He's got uh, a part in Silkwood, which is a, a uh, Meryl Streep, um, Mike Nichols movie r- written by Nora Ephron. Um, yeah, he's, I mean, he's just one of these guys that just pops up all over the place. He's in Fletch, the, the, uh, uh <laughs> Tom Hanks movie. No, no, no. Uh, uh, Chevy Chase. Oh, Chevy Chase. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, mm. classic character actor just shows up in a bunch of stuff and, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's really great in this movie. I think he's oh, the yeah. perfect level of slime. Yes. He's believably slime. He's believably slicked and he's not... Like, he is an asshole, but he's not. Like, it's perfect down the line where I don't like this guy. He's he's annoying, but he's not so dickish and so beyond. Mm, I don't know about that. No, I, I disagree with you there. I think, I think he has reason to be wary of the Dustin Hoffman character. He has reason to not take that character at it, at his word. So I'm I'm with you on that level. However, the way he goes about it is everything wrong with the justice system where he like the 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 scene the the initial introduction scene he does a perfect job of playing the well, listen, I'm doing my job. This is I have to treat you like like this. This is kind of you've you've made your choices. This is kind of where you're at. Sorry, I have to I have to, you know, go by the book on this one. But the scene where he breaches that and goes into fuck this guy territory is when he comes and, and uh, you know, first of all, breaks into uh, Dustin Hoffman's hotel room, um, handcuffs him to the bed because he finds a, a matchbook and essentially just uses that matchbook to make Hoffman's life really fucking difficult. And instead of, taking any level of compassion and trying to, um, you know, be like, okay, listen, I want to take you at your word. I can't let's go get you tested. And, and then if you're clean, we're good. Like we, we don't have to worry about this. Instead, he says, no, okay, we're, we're going to fuck with you. We're going to throw you in jail. We're going to, we're going to find out in the background that you didn't need to be thrown in jail at all. And I'm not going to be sorry about that at all, because this is what I do. And like, and then I'm going to spout off some racist jokes and I'm going to be super sexist and, and shitty. And, um, then I'm going to try and like use my like nice guy persona to try and weasel out of you like a, you know, a conviction a for confession. some other guy. Yeah. And, um, and that's what breaks Hoffman. He's just like, this fucking guy will not like, just leave me alone. Like, and, and like it, it, it then does kind of you know, beg the question of like, wait, is Hoffman inherently this guy or is the system just forcing his hand because he like, he made a couple of bad choices when he's younger and he's not able to escape this cycle because of people like this fucking guy. Like, I, I don't think he's a good guy on any level. I think he is a guy that likes to use his position of power over people. And like, I mean, like, I think he's intentionally dressed up to be a fucking loser like like he looks like a like a you know a guy that you're just like 
you are just you're going to be annoying. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, I think for the most part, I agree with you, particularly when he breaks into Hoffman's room, is waiting for him there. And that whole like throwing him in jail for the book of matches, which is clearly drug paraphernalia, but still like no track marks, no visible signs of drugs outside of that. Throw was him in it jail clearly and- drug paraphernalia? It's just a matchbook. Uh, but the way they were all burnt down, I think that's probably commonly how people did mm. heroin. And sure. and it was, um, he definitely seemed familiar with it in terms of meaning um, M- Emmett. <laughs> was, you can just was call him Walsh. Character. That's fine. Walsh, yeah. His character was familiar with the, probably that sort of thing. But so like, and him throwing Hoffman in jail and making no effort to get him out from this false... Or not even apologizing for the fact that he threw him in unwarranted. Yeah. And like looking through that grate when he's like, no, I'm being nice or whatever. He's like, he's like sweetening this like terrible turn of events. Like that's all like asshole-ish, unredeemable stuff. And and I'm with you. And, but there's other stuff that makes the character to me a little more nuanced. Like he does um, make the deal with Hoffman that he doesn't have to go to the halfway house if he finds a, a, a room and an employment you know, he's good. And you can make an argument that that's part of his power play and part of his kind of manipulation tactics. But it's just, I just like the character a lot. He's, he's, he's a dick and he's obnoxious, but I believe it. He's not all You like the character villain. as it's performed, not yes, the character yes. as a I person. Yes, I'm not cheering the character on from a character right. perspective, but I just, I buy that this person is real and it's the perfect amount of like, Happy to be in power, shit heel. It's not like, um, and actually, I think they referenced Nurse Ratchet in the commentary of something they might be aiming for, but it's not that far. Like Nurse Ratchet is so like sociopathic. That character, that's a good character. I'm not talking shit about that, but like this person is just a little more grounded to me, and is not is is mostly an asshole. But there are moments where they're they do cut. He does cut Hoffman some slack, and he does play ball and that to me balances the character out a little bit more even though i do think he's mostly a shit heel i don't like him but anyway i kind of if you're down i really want to talk about Teresa russell yeah let's talk about her she blew me away she's really good in this movie she plays jenny mercer obviously the kind of primary love interest the love interest for for dustin hoffman's character max and I've not seen her in anything else. I don't know if her doesn't seem like she it looks like she had some success and like was a working actor, but I certainly didn't become a household name from what I can tell. And she is fantastic in this movie. The control she has over her face and her expressions and the the amount that it changes in any given scene was unreal. And of course, yes, she's beautiful. She has this great look, very unique, but she can fucking act, man. She's really, really good. And I was so impressed with her in this movie. Well, this is only her second film. Crazy. Uh, Her first film was The Last Tycoon, uh, which was an Elia Kazan film from 76 starring Robert De Niro. It's an adaptation of uh, F. F. Scott Fitzgerald uh, story. Um, And that's one that I haven't seen. I'd, I'd like to go back and check that out as well. 
Uh, I've actually weirdly never seen a Kazan. Uh, Me neither. Is, that's, I that's was just a, thinking that. That's a big blind spot of mine. But yeah, uh, so she's in that uh, as I, I guess the main uh, love interest in there. Um, or actually, is she? No, she's she's way down the cast list. Actually, I take that back. So I, yeah, I don't even know exactly who she plays in that. But this is only her second appearance on film, and she's outstanding. I, I think mm. she, I think she was only like twenty when they made this movie, um, and she she does she communicates like or she comes across older than that in this. She she yeah. definitely like has, um. She seems like twenty five or something, like vibe wise. You know what I mean? Like, totally. Like she, did, she seems like she, she's not world weary, but she is not stupid. She, she's very yes. like. I, I love that this movie doesn't talk down to her character and doesn't make her this like unwitting accomplice. Like, yeah, she's no dunce. Yeah, she's not dumb. She, she is aware of everything going on and she is making choices to stay or to go or, you know, where, wherever she's at at a given point in the movie. Um, and I think, I think the movie, like I saw some people also on letterbox and in reviews kind of critiquing the fact that like this character felt unnecessary to them. And I'm like, no, this is like, this is so important and so crucial to the Hoffman character. And like, it's, it, it's this dalliance that he's doing between like dom- domesticity and, and maintaining his thief lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And she is trying to find that middle ground with him where he can have both. And like, it, it's just like, it's this, you know, doomed love story where it's like, it's not, it, it's not going to work out. Like, the, like you're not going to find that balance. Like, like this guy is, is broken. Yeah, and it seems like it's the closest he Hoffman could get to someone who's not a thief, understanding him, and accepting him. Mm-hmm. Like she is is so um, cautiously generous with him, or and not even, but she's just like I'm using the word cautious to kind of go with, and because I agree what you said of her not being like stupid. Like she's aware of who Hoffman is, what type of person he is. And she's drawn to him, but she has that like that. I'm thinking of that moment where he asked to borrow her keys and she hands the keys and just like, just promise not to steal it. She's kind of half three fourths kidding. And then um, she's like, I got to work tomorrow. And then she does one of those amazing face changes after she says, I have to go to work tomorrow. She's like kind of smiling. Her face just gets like stern and she's really kind of like reading him and like analyzing like this guy might actually steal my fucking car. And I don't know. I just, I, I just loved how often she did stuff like that in this movie, but she's, she, again, she's not like, she's aware of who she's getting into bed with and she's calculating the risks and she's drawn to it. And, um, she still, and in, in the end wants to be with him, but can't. And she is like the most understanding person I've ever seen in a movie. It's crazy. Yeah, and it, but it's not like, like she's like tacitly agreeing to the fact that he's going to be this person. Like she mm-hmm. is is allowing it, but it doesn't make her fully okay with it. Like she's yes. living somewhere in between those two, and I think like what I like is you know a lot of these these seventies eighties you know female uh, supporting characters just fall into these tropes of you know the like. Um, 
the oblivious wife or the conniving wife or, you know, like, like I think, I think it, it just, you know, misogyny is just, just runs rampant through, through a lot of filmmaking in that era. And not to say that this movie is like fully like feminist by any means. Mm -hmm. Like, I think like there are moments that the movie like shows its age, but at the same time, like she has agency, like she is making choices. And like, I think that that's, you got to, when you see that in a movie from this era, it's worth pointing out. But one of the, one of the times I'm just like, I'm really into her in the scene is when after he steals the shotgun from the pawn shop mm-hmm. and he and he comes back to her house and he's kind of dirty and they're trying to figure out where this is going. She has that great line where she's like, if it gets too hot for me, I'm out of here. And it's just like, that's the type of thing. It's like, yes, that's a, that's a strong, like a, a, a character who has a clean read on the situation and is... Like so many shitty movies we've seen have a character like that be like, yeah, but you're a thief for getting all dramatic and over the top or just trying to control the other character. Like again, she recognizes his nature and she, but she loves him or cares for him enough to play along until she can't. But in that, when she mentions it until it gets too hot for me, she's in that moment immediately agreeing to the fact that it's not going to, it can't last. Yeah, she's you not going to be the Bonnie to his Clyde. No, like, yeah, this is this has an expiration date. Yeah, as all things do, but this specifically is just not going to be, and and she'll be a part of it for as long as she can. And I kind of wish she had chosen to walk away at the end, just to kind of not make her like forcing, for like it would have been cool if she was like, "Good luck, we've hit that point. We talked. Yeah, about, I'm out." No, I, 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 yeah, I, there's part of me that does wish it ended with her making that choice as opposed well, she to, almost does as opposed to him over. making it for yeah. her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, at the same time, like if you do that, you lose the best part of Hoffman's characterization, which is him acknowledging that I'm a part of this cycle and I can't break it, you know, yeah. which is yeah. like that, that is you know, ultimately this movie is a character study of the Hoffman character. So you're going to begin and end with him and you're going to, it it needs to end on that moment of him coming to that self realization. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think unfortunately like she kind of becomes the expense at that where like, she's not making the choice to, to fuck off. Like she probably should. Um, but ultimately like outside of that moment, I think the character, is really strong and, and really well written, and uh, Teresa Russell is awesome. Yeah, great. Uh, one one of those we talk about it a lot. One of those for me anyway. Who is this? The only other thing I can think of that I I've seen her in. She plays uh, <laughs> another Spider Man reference in this episode. Spider Man <laughs> Three. She is uh, Emma Marco, who's the wife of uh, Thomas Hayden Church's Sandman character. Oh, there we go. So, classic. Yeah, classic. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Where, where do we want to go from here? Do you want to talk about Busey real quick? Let's do a quick Busey run, and then Let's and then I do Busey. want to touch base uh, on on uh, Kathy Bates as well. But uh, Gary cool. Busey, another classic character actor. Um, the man's legitimately insane, uh, <laughs> but but uh, I love the energy he brings to to every character. So this movie came out in 78. This is the same year that the Buddy Holly story came out, which Busey was a star of and kind of kickstarted his career as a leading man as opposed to just, you know, kind of supporting characters. Um, 
He's also, this is also his second time on Dartboard Movie Night. He was in uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot in a very brief appearance. Oh, that's right. He was like the mechanic guy the plumber. or something. Yeah, the yeah, plumber, yeah, yeah. yes. God, I, I barely remember him. Yeah, he's on like the crew that uh, when, they're, when they're doing kind of the, the uh, when they're casing, the, you know, yeah. the, the whole heist that they're about to pull off. Right, um, right. But yeah, uh, second appearance on the show, much bigger part in this this movie. Uh, how'd you feel about Busey here? I really thought he was spectacular. And, you know, he's I think he's a great this, little tragic character, right? Unbelievable. And so I, I, I buy it completely. I buy the character. It seems real. I think it, he's at this stage of his career. I think he seems really good at channeling his impulses productively where he like he has this sort of um, freewheeling vibe to him and mm-hmm. a certain unpredictability, but it's not defining the performance. It's just kind of sprinkled in there and it just seems very real. And I wonder if this is true for a lot of people our age, but I kind of grew up knowing that Gary Busey was a nut and that he was a bit of a loon. He was an eccentric and I actually got introduced to him from I think the Celebrity Apprentice, and the Celebrity I, Apprentice was you your introduction. It. And I just he had this reputation of being this kind of strange, out there actor who was washed up, obviously because he was on the Celebrity Apprentice. So that's kind of how I this person got on my radar. But every time I've actually seen a performance of his, outside of maybe Black Sheep, which is awful. Um, I'm always impressed of how good it really is. And I don't know. I felt that way about this, where I thought it was damn near perfect. He's great in every scene he's in. He he goes toe-to-toe with Hoffman's character. There's a great tragedy to it, like you mentioned. I like the scene with his in-real-life son, who's playing his son in scene as well. That whole sequence is great. And just the way he brings a big wooden slab up a flight of stairs and throws it under the bed. Like it all just what feels a funny little touch real. to this movie. Yeah. It's such a funny, it's a funny thing, but it's, I, um, yeah. I loved it. And for me, I, like point break is what I think of when I think yeah. of Gary Busey and he's awesome in that movie mm-hmm. and he's barely in Thunderbolt Lightfoot, but I'm going to be looking to get more Busey on because I, again, I kind of knew his personality before I knew his work hmm. And when I see his work now, I'm actually like legit impressed. And I'm like, oh, this guy is not like a clowny. I mean, he is kind of, but like this, he's a real actor. He, he's really good. I loved him in this. Yeah. No, I, I always think of Point Break and uh, a movie that I grew up on, Rookie of the Year. He plays the washed up pitcher that kind of mentors uh, the, you know, the kid that becomes a pitcher on the Cubs. He's mm. Chet Stedman, one of the all-time <laughs> all-time great character names. That sounds like one of uh, like Brock Landers. <laughs> Chet Stedman used to make me and my brother cackle laughing because he would do this like there's this cutaway to him and he's like just grimacing and doing this weird like guttural like growl <laughs> like to just just to indicate disappointment and it's like I don't know it just always made me and my brother laugh <laughs> so I think of him all the time with that stash in, in Rookie of the Year and then obviously Point Break is one of the greatest action movies of all time and he's amazing in it 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, love Gary Busey. Uh, I'm curious to see what you end up putting on as far as like. I know. I don't know where to. I don't that, even. I, he might be someone I just keep an eye out for because yeah. I don't know if I want to like track down an iconic Busey role, or maybe I do. Who, Who knows? knows? But it'll be in the weeks to come. It's it's in the bag of options. Don't want to spend too much time on her, but definitely have to mention Kathy Bates. She's a legend. Um, this is very early in her career. She plays Gary Buse's wife in this movie. Uh, and I think she has a great little scene. Like I love, she, she doesn't have a lot of screen time, but she really effectively communicates this sense of like, you are a bad influence on my husband. I don't hate you as a person, but I can't have you around because you threaten my way of life, you know? Um, and I think she she really, like, walks that tightrope brilliantly in this of, I have compassion for you. I don't, I don't necessarily want to do this, but I, I need you to not be here because you are going to fuck up everything for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she crushes that in the in this you know kind of basically two scene performance. Yeah, I really love the way she delivers that line. Now you're making me feel bad, which she's like kind of kicking him out, and he's like, "Oh, I get it. You're just doing what you have to do." And and I don't know. She's 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 great with that line delivery. I thought overall she was just solid. Um, and it was more the charm of seeing her in one of her first movie performances ever. <laughs> And this person who obviously was going to be a big star. Misery is on my contender list, by the way, a movie mm-hmm. I've I've never seen. But yeah, I'm nope. not a big fan personally, but not a big fan. Yeah, it's okay. It's a, but it's a way. fine movie. And she, and honestly, I think she's a little overrated in it. Um I, mm-hmm. I like her a lot more in other performances. Um but like the office. I like her in the office. <laughs> she's she's really funny in the office. She's great in the office. Underrated. Yeah. Um no, what I uh I did want to talk about real briefly. So Around this time, I mean, I don't know how much the timelines line up here, but Kathy Bates for a while was roommates with the Coen brothers and with Ooh. Holly Hunter and with Sam Raimi. Wow. <laughs> These like it's wow. the weirdest collection of people. And there's a lot of stories about Holly Hunter and the Coens and Sam Raimi all living together. There's less stories about Kathy Bates living with them. I know Kathy Bates was a little bit older. It like definitely begs questions about like, you know, like why haven't, hasn't she worked with the Coens? The, the, both of those other people have done tons of work with the Coens uh, after that fact, but it does bring up a question in my mind, which is okay. The Coen brothers are living with her around this time. Blood Simple comes out in 1980, two years after this movie was made, starring M. Emmett Walsh in that movie. Did Kathy Bates make the connection between M. Emmett Walsh and the Coen brothers? I don't know. (laughs) Be kind of cool if she did. That would be pretty sweet. I don't know. I I love all those kind of like six degrees of separation kind of questions that, that, you know, come up in Hollywood, especially when it's like, you know, people that, are famous each individually in their own right have like made names for themselves without each other's help. 
mm-hmm. um, that all like started their careers together. I, f- I find that really interesting to look at. And uh, I, I that's my head canon now. Like that's that's what I, I'm going to go with as like that. That has to be how Blood Simple came about. <laughs> and hey, maybe we'll end up watching it. And uh, maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll hear something in the commentary about it, or who knows? We will see. We will see. But yeah, love Kathy Bates. Was happy to see her. Uh, this is definitely the the youngest Kathy Bates I've ever seen on screen. Yep, same here. Um, any other actors you want to highlight? I think I mean we basically ran through the whole cast for the most part. I mean, there's there's some side characters, but yeah, there's one um, side character I want to sh- give a quick shout out to. There's a minor character named Manny. This is the guy who's supposed to deliver the shotgun to the poker game, doesn't, gets punched in the face. <laughs> he plays an iconic character on the show Seinfeld, Jack Klompus, who is this person who lives in Florida with Jerry's parents, and he's this older guy with liver spots, and he's curmudgeonly and difficult <laughs> and very complainy. Hilarious character. I don't know if I knew this. And it's the it's the same actor, and he's so much younger, obviously, in this. I could barely recognize it, but you know when you, you see it in the eyes, and I was like, I think that's the guy who plays Jack Klompus. For any more casual fans out there, you may have seen the episode where this guy has the astronaut pen that can write upside down and ends up giving it to Jerry, and it turns into this whole storyline thing. But anyway, he's a great character on that show. He doesn't he shows up maybe eight times, 10 times in the whole series, but he's a scene stealer and it was just kind of funny seeing him here. Yeah. The actor's name is Sandy Barron. Yes. Yes. That's him. And so that was the last it for, that. That was the last one for me for cast casting wise. Uh, making me want to go back and find episodes with him in it. Cause I, I, I remember scenes like you're talking about. I just can't picture his face in them. So I need to, yeah. I need to go back and check that out. Uh, maybe I'll see if I can find you a little YouTube. Find me a of- clip. Four minute, four minute reel, best of Jack Klompus. I would love that. Thing. Cool. Um, well, let's move on. I, I mean, I don't want to spend too much more time. I think we've we've dug no, into this we're... movie pretty deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to mention the music. This is uh, the the music in this movie is composed by David Shire, who is a legend, and uh, he also composed the music for the taking of Pelham One Two Three, which was a score oh, that cool. we loved when we covered yes. that movie. And he's also famous for doing the score for um, the conversation, conversation. Yes, which is the amazing jazzy score that just fits that movie perfectly. Um, he also did the score for All the President's Men. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, during the pre-chat, we were talking a lot about David Fincher because The Killer just came out and we were discussing that. But um David Fincher had him compose the score for Zodiac. So if you go back and watch Zodiac, listen to the score and you will hear the through lines. Like the dude just knows how to make these kind of like pop boilery crime scores that feel like jazzy and riffy and they, they, they're very unique. It, it like when you hear a David Shire score, you know, you're hearing a David Shire score. Yeah. It's interesting because that was one of the elements of this movie that grew a lot on second watch. Mm, mm-hmm. First watch, I didn't really care for it. The score is not in the movie much, but it's like, you know, when he when he first gets out of jail, it's that... It was just so 70s. I was mm-hmm. just like, I don't know about this. Second and third viewing, I'm now fully on board. And it's just kind of... To me, the score just sounds like it is what it is. 
which is like that. That's like what the movie is to me. It's just like yeah, say la vie, fuck it, you know. And the, and I think the score fits really well for that. Yeah, I agree. I I love his work in this movie, and every time I've ever heard his stuff, I've I've really loved it. Yeah. So. And before we move on, I just want to say I love how sparingly it's used. Mm. I, mean, I hit that drum all the time, but like all, so many of the high scenes, so the really intense moments in this movie, no fucking music. It's just letting the kinetic energy and the sound that's there propel things. And I fucking love that. Absolutely love it. Totally. I think you wanted to mention the editing maybe a little bit. Yes. So I wanted to give a shout out to Sam Austin. Could be Osteen. It's O apostrophe S T E E N. Was a legendary editor at this time, and it's just showed up in a lot of movies that um, I've been enjoying recently. He was the editor on Rosemary's Baby, Catch Twenty Two, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Chinatown. Uh, this movie, obviously, just a great, great editor from this time. And and I don't know. A lot of times, I feel like we don't give a ton of love to the editor, so I wanted to give a shout out. And this is not you know, a flashy movie at all from an editing standpoint. But I think what this movie has is you don't notice it. Like I never noticed the cuts when they happen in this movie, really for the most part. And I think that speaks to how natural it is and how right it is. You know, it's kind of a lot of times they'll say about a cornerback in football, the defensive position that if they don't, if you don't hear that person's name, it means they had a good day sort of thing. I feel that way about editing sometimes where it's like, if you don't notice it, it probably means it's being done very, very well. That it's like, it's clicking with your brain rhythm so well that you don't even notice it. And I, I had that experience on this one. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it's not flashy by any means, but when you actually like watch it with that in mind and you're thinking about, you know, the choices that are being made, I think he does a great job of knowing when to linger on faces in conversation. And I mean, I'm specifically thinking about um, the scene between Hoffman and M.M. at Walsh at the beginning of the movie where it it really lingers on Hoffman's face and and very rarely is cutting back to Walsh to, to you know, have his single shot. Um, it's mostly focused on Hoffman's reactions and just letting those play out and kind of having Walsh's voice be more of like a, you know, in the background. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I think it's really effective and, and doesn't call attention to itself, which like you said, is, is a lot of times, you know, when you feel like editing is doing its best work. Mm. Yep. 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 It's, uh, it's <laughs> a lot of times when people talk about like the editing Oscar, they'll, uh, they'll make the joke that like, the Oscars really don't give it to the best editing. They give it to the most editing. Mm, <laughs> and, yes. And I think that's more often than not true where it's like the editing that calls attention to itself gets awarded. And it's like the real, the real test is like, does this communicate everything clearly? And you don't even notice that there are like all these cuts and weird yeah. know, things going on. So yeah, mm -hmm. totally, totally. Anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up here? Yeah. Um, it's kind of two last quick things here. I just wanted to really hit home how much I love the jewelry heist in this movie. I love the way it's unfolds, the way it's shot, everything. The way he, Dustin Hoffman, just walks in with the bag, sets it down next to the glass case, starts putting the gloves on and the goggles on. And that saleswoman is like, excuse me, what are you doing? 
And then he just starts bashing. They both start bashing all the glass. People start freaking out. That's all just one shot. And it's not like a fancy dancy, a steady cam tracking shot or anything. Like that it's just all, it just starts and goes. And it's just so fucking cool. And in rehearsals, all of those glass cases was sugar glass. And they saw it happening. And the director was just like, this is no good. This sh- just looks like shit. It looks phony. We can't do sugar glass. So they decided to use real glass on the day, and the use of real glass led them to adding the goggles and the gloves because they had to think around it and how how can we safely work in this environment. And I think that adds such a nice touch to the whole scene, just the addition of those gloves gloves and goggles. Um, And I just loved it. It was just so no-nonsense, so lacking in frills, so down the barrel, and I thought it was just a great scene. Yeah, no, I love it. It's it's very matter of fact. It just yeah. Yep. Nope. We're doing this. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the um, intensity when he's pulling out the jewels and like, and fucking Harry Dean's yelling at him. We gotta go. We gotta go. And it's just like it. I well, really and I feel love it. all the the shots of like in the cases of just like a hand digging through mm-hmm. glass to like find the jewels and like mm-hmm. you're you're feeling the tension ramp up as he's like kind of like sifting through and like trying to find more and more and more and it's just like the time is the clock is ticking and ticking and ticking and it's like and harry dean's yelling in the background yeah it's it's that is like a perfect example of understated tension building like mm-hmm. i it, it doesn't like you said like doesn't require any music doesn't require flashy editing like no wild camera moves no like you're not cutting away to like cops like bearing down on the you know the the uh, jewelry store it's just like no, you're in it and you're just mm-hmm. feeling like the tension of like it mounting like you're, you, you know, like, I don't know. It's just it's just yeah. really, really well constructed. Fucking great scene. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I had one last thing. This is a new question. I'm throwing it on you, Drew, but I think yeah. it could be fun and maybe it'll be a reoccurring thing. I know that Scorsese loves to do this with his letterbox account. He loves to suggest a pairing. Loves to do it in terms of like, like as of a week ago when he got I a think, letterbox yeah, account. This is when I started hearing about it, but I, I think it how, might be how, kind hold of. Hold on, in, hold on a second. Let me just yeah, stop yeah. you for a second. Scorsese has a letterbox account and you don't. What is wrong with you? Uh, he might have been the final straw. He might have been the final straw. But I think it's the sort of in thing to do now, but amongst movie nerds and people like us, is is these pairings. Oh, so oh, the pairings. <laughs> the you were pairings. Go no, on no, letterbacks. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm over Just here rolling pairings. my eyes because I thought actually, Jared was going to do a, a whole riff on fucking the, the dangers of social media. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> um, and actually, Graham and Alexa and I have talked about doing like Saturday afternoon, evening movie pairings just for fun. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, what yeah. would you match with this? So I want to ask you, Drew, if you had friends over, if you're hanging out with somebody and you're like, oh, what would you what would you pair to this movie as a double feature? What would you want to watch either before or after straight time that you think would go well together? It's a good question. Um, just off the top of my head, I mean, the ones I mentioned Manchester by the Sea earlier. I don't mm-hmm. think that's necessarily like a perfect fit. But if you're going to try and kind of shake up the tone a little bit, you know, while still dealing with similar uh, through lines. I think that'd be an interesting pairing. Um, I think a more obvious pairing would be Michael Mann's Thief. Mm. Um, you know, I think, you know, so, something like, 
I, I think this movie probably inspired Steven Soderbergh quite a bit. I think doing something like out of sight or, uh, even oceans 11 would be, be a good pairing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I would, ha- that, that's one I would want to put a little more thought into, but, uh, certainly like there's a lot of ways you can go. I mean, maybe even like the French connection would be a good, good pairing with it. Um, yeah, I don't know. What do you, th- what do you got? Well, that was a great list for it being sprung on you. French Connection was on my list, too. You know, it's kind of flip side of the coin a little bit. Law enforcement side of thing, but someone who is morally gray. Another 70s movie, Crime, is kind of the, uh, you know, it's the like the story, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, Reservoir Dogs, I think, would sure. be a good one to pair with it. It's kind of low-hanging fruit, but I think it'd be a good fit. And then the last one that uh, came to mind was Heat kind sure. of similar to your thief but like uh, again exploring crime and and what type of person is a criminal and folding in that sort of law enforcement side of it too as they do without Pacino's character but I don't know something I think we could be fun to to tack on to the end of conversations in the future what would you what would you pair with this yeah all in all I think it was just an awesome movie I'm really glad we both liked it if anything it sounds like you might have liked it even more than I did and I thought it was a really really rock solid borderline if not actively great movie and it's among my favorites we've covered this batch i thought it was yeah. dope uh, i'm right there with you i i yeah I'm, i might be higher on it than you are i i think in terms of the the new batch in terms of 51 to to now 66 i mean this is this is up there with my favorites i think i would i would still put ikiru um and Oof, amadeus probably above this but i mean this is this is right there with you know night moves and nashville and and zed as 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 far as like and you can count on me as like uh, some really really amazing films that we've covered recently um yeah i mean straight story as well we've we've covered some good shit in this batch already yeah. it's and what i'm what i'm liking as i'm looking over it you know like our first 50 there were a lot of big movies that were blind spots for us um, or ones that we wanted to show each other. And then this one is like much more off the beaten path, I mm. feel like, from from yeah. our first 50. The, like a lot of these are more niche ones or like things that are like a, a filmmaker's, you know, debut or like something that's that's uh, not normal for their filmography, like the straight story or, you know, really the only like major, major movie. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, we we did the Karate Kid, we did Nashville, we did Amadeus. Those are big movies, but I feel like outside of and the Terminator, but outside of that, like we we've kind of kept it to these these kind of fringe movies, which yeah. I really like. I, I I love it too, man, and I like that we have the splashy ones in there too, like Karate Kid and Terminator. But um, it's it's a good sounding list so far, and if memory serves, Drew, it is your week to nominate a new replacement for a straight time. It sounds like you've already got a contender. Um, what are you thinking? What are you thinking should go on place? I'm not even going to waste any time on this. I, it's got to be blood simple. I want to keep going with, with noiry stuff. I want to keep going with the crime element. Uh, I want to see some more MM at Walsh. Uh, I want to see a young Francis McDormand. I want to see a debut film from the Coen brothers. There's a million reasons to put this perfect. And I could sit here and I could go through my list and be like, well, that would be interesting. But Let's just do it. Let's let's yep. stick to it. Let's let's go with it. Excellent choice, dude. And it just seems it seems organic. It seems right. I love it. 
I am down. Blood Simple going on at number 14. Let's review the board and then throw that dart. At number one, The Brothers Bloom. Number two, Don't Look Now. Number three, The Last of the Mohicans. Number four, Rio Bravo. Number five, Capote. Number six, Anomalisa. Number seven, Alligator. Number eight, Election. Number nine, Get Carter. Number 10, The Limey. Number 11, Coraline. Number 12, Big Night. Number 13, Dirty Dancing. Number 14, Blood Simple. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Secrets and Lies. Number 17, Seven Days in May. Number 18, Snatch. Number 19, Strange Days. And number 20, Altered States. Nice, dude. I'm aiming for the bull. Let's see what we get. Well, true. The dart has spoken. What's it got to say? Number one. Number one is the Brothers Bloom. The Brothers Bloom. Okay, another slightly recent. 2008 Ryan Johnson film. It's his follow-up to Brick, which was his low-budget uh, debut neo-noir film. This one is a con man movie starring Mark Ruffalo, Adrian Brody, Rachel Weisz. It's, uh, yeah, it's a movie that I've seen once before, way back in college. It sucks that I can say way back for that at this point. But, <laughs> that's um, the way she goes. That's the way she goes. But yeah, I'm excited to revisit it because it's, you know, I, I've... He Ryan Johnson's one of my favorite working filmmakers. You know, he really excels in these uh, you know, dialogue heavy, character-based, twisty turny kind of films. And this is an early entry in that for him. So yeah, I'm I'm curious to go back to it and see if I like it more or less than I did at the time. I remember really enjoying it the first time, but not necessarily it being uh, among my favorites of his. So um, yeah, I'm curious to see where it lands now that uh, I've had a ton of time to to be away from it and come back to it. Dude, I'm looking forward to it. I've I've never seen it. Um, kind of might be a a good match, like to go from this a movie about criminals to maybe what I assume is sort of more lighthearted about con men and stuff, but still kind of similar. I don't really know what to expect. Um, according to what I'm seeing here, it's just pay to rent right now. So in terms of a streaming check, 2008 Brother, Brothers Bloom. The or just Brothers, by the way? The Brothers Bloom. Ah, 2008's The Brothers Bloom is just pay to rent at the moment, which I'm kind of surprised with how much love he's been getting lately as a filmmaker. Johnson and like Peacock seems to be, I don't know, surprising. But anyway, kick in a couple of bucks and next week we'll be able to see what we think of this thing. Absolutely. So that'll be our episode next week. This week, that'll do it for straight time. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Please remember to rate, review, give us a follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. If you want to keep in touch or give us a recommendation, drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at dartboardmovienight. Our work for the show is created by Veronica Roman, and all of our music is by Eric Williams. Play us out, Eric. Sorry, Mike. Light up.